seemed inevitable. The airplane swept wing over away from the monument and then came around in another wide circle. He grinned again, pleased as much with himself as with his latest toy, and so far he'd only been operating on low rates. Once he really got the feel of the craft and switched to high, its performance would be even more impressive. But that was for the future. For now, he had one final maneuver to perform, the landing. He kept the fighters circling overhead for a while, then set up his final approach, making sure to give the nose cone a slight upward angle and the craft itself a little more throttle to help arrest its descent. At first, the fighter responded perfectly. It dropped smoothly toward the short-cropped grass, its shadow darting along beneath it as if tied there by invisible string. But when McGowan tried to lower the landing gear, the plane ignored his command and started to angle skyward instead. Puzzled, he quickly checked the transmitter's digital screen. The Spectrum DX-7 was a seven-channel computer radio, and he'd taken special care to get the mix between wing type, control surfaces, rudder, and everything else just right. Confirming that he'd programmed all the rates correctly, he toggled the joysticks again. But no matter what he did, the aircraft stubbornly ignored his every command. He examined the transmitter for any signs of malfunction. Nothing. He made sure the transmitter was in the correct PPM modulation mode. It was. And yet, the fighter was apparently flying under its own volition, which was impossible. Briefly, he considered the likelihood of radio or cell phone interference, but that seemed as unlikely as the only other possibility. The two transmitters had somehow locked onto the same frequency at the same time. Even so, he hurriedly scanned his surroundings, confirming that he was alone. Then, a change in the pitch of the motor made him look up again. The Eurofighter was coming out of a wide turn and beginning what looked suspiciously like a bombing run, with him as the target. With growing alarm, McGowan watched as the aircraft halved the distance between them. He still couldn't understand what had caused the malfunction. Model airplanes didn't turn rogue. And yet, the Eurofighter swept lower, the whine of its motor rising to a scream warning McGowan that he'd better head for cover. Turning, he started running for the Jefferson Memorial, realizing too late how far away it was. The Eurofighter streaked after him, its wings, canards, elevons, and thrust vector nozzles tipping and tilting frantically, as if in anticipation of what was to come. Above the sound of his panting, McGowan heard the buzz of the motor coming closer and knew he was never going to outrun the plane. At the last second, he threw himself to the ground. The airplane roared overhead, missing him by inches, and flew on. McGowan rolled over and jumped to his feet. Looking up, he saw the Eurofighter make a high, fast circle, sunlight flaring off its gray backswept wings. It was coming for him again. Panicked, he again started running for the protection of the Jefferson Memorial. Behind him, he heard the spiteful drone of the aircraft's motor, now flat out, rise in pitch, pushing the fighter to top speed. McGowan glanced back to get a fix on his pursuer and froze. The fighter plunged at him like a great gray bird of prey, its wings suddenly rock-steady, its sleek silhouette growing larger, larger. Seconds later, it slammed into his face, smashing through flesh, bone, and brain, virtually decapitating him. Man and machine went down in a bloody sprawl. Both died at the same time. A few seconds passed, and then a figure stepped from behind one of the white Vermont marble columns supporting the dome roof of the Jefferson Memorial. 
The shadows of the other columns hid the newcomer's face, but they didn't hide the radio control system the figure had used to override McGowan's transmitter. Neither did they quite disguise the cool, killer smile the figure allowed himself at a job well done. Satisfied that Roy McGowan was dead, the figure turned and walked unhurriedly away. Chapter 2 The small one-story chapel in Oak Hill Cemetery sat among trees and well-groomed hedgerows on a high ridge overlooking the graveyard, which resembled a terraced botanical garden. Built in 1850, it was the only known example of James Renwick's Gothic Revival ecclesiastical design in Washington, D.C. Today, as rain pelted down on the steeply pitched roof, buttresses, and white cathedral-shaped windows, a funeral had just ended at a nearby gravesite. Mourners, umbrellas shielding them from the worst of the downpour, quietly offered their condolences to the...